Welcome to episode 13 of History of the Marine Corps. The reprisal heads to sea and support from the French. In the last episode, the Marines and the Navy would participate in naval battles against the British Navy. Although Marines wouldn't play a major role during these battles, they did work with the Navy on some small missions, and it would be the first time Continental Marines cooperated with the colony's naval forces. This week, the Navy and Marines fight a few more battles at sea, but this time, the Marines would contribute significantly with victories over the British. We finally get to see the reprisal in action. The Lexington and the Alfred head out to sea, and the Marines are assigned to the Continental Congress's new 13 ships built specifically for war. The Marine Committee would also issue uniforms to Navy and Marine officers and issue pay raises for everyone, except enlisted Marines. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. As we discussed during the last episode, Captain Miles Pennington received orders to the reprisal and was instructed to recruit Marines who would serve on board the ship as well. Captain Pennington enlisted 24 privates and at least two sergeants for duty on board the reprisal, including the first black Marine, John Martin, also known as Keto. Captain Miles Pennington was from the South Wark District of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His birth wasn't recorded, so his parents and his birth date are unknown. Similar to today, Southwark is located south of the dock ward, and this was a bustling location for shipbuilding. Many people who had a career or dedicated their lives to the sea lived near here. Historian Charles R. Smith claims that it was quite likely that Pennington was familiar with other men in the neighborhood, and he knew the ones who later became Continental Marines. Although the exact date Pennington was commissioned is not known, we do know the date that he completed his will on April 30th, 1776. He addressed himself as Miles Pennington of the City of Philadelphia, Captain of Marines on board the good ship Reprisal, now laying in the port of Philadelphia. In his will, he left all of his possessions to his wife, Catherine Pennington. He will stipulate that Catherine will receive all of his wages and prize money. He had fellow Marines William Woodhouse, John Ord Jr., and John Elliott serve as his witnesses to his will. Pennington would take his 26 Marines and board two fireboats for battle against the two British ships, the Roebuck and the Liverpool. Fire ships were filled with flammable material, purposefully set on fire, and piloted towards enemy ships. These ships were used against wooden vessels with the purpose of setting them on fire. The British Navy was familiar with this tactic. It was used against them with great success by Spain during the Spanish Armada, by the Dutch during the raid on Medway, and later by the Greeks during their War of Independence. However, the Americans' use of fire ships against the British wasn't too effective. Americans did not have a lot of experience with the fire ships, and most of the time they used rafts and guided them towards the British ships. Even though the American fire ships did not cause a lot of damage, they did play a role in psychological warfare and created panic which made the enemy break formation. Captain Pennington spent three days at sea on board these vessels, and now he and his marines returned to find the reprisal ready to leave port and help in the fight against the British. The reprisal was one of the few ships that did not donate its powder and ammunition to the galleys when supplies were requested after their confrontation with the Roebuck and the Liverpool. 
Although supplies were stocked on the reprisal, the seamen who staffed the ships were not in good shape. Many men on board the reprisal became extremely sick and had to be admitted to the hospital immediately. Initially, the men who required treatment were refused admission into the hospital at Fort Island since the hospital was only for residents of that province. The Marine Committee had to get involved and they convinced the hospital on Fort Island to admit the sailors who needed care. Meanwhile, First Lieutenant Luke Matthewman, Second Lieutenant Robert Scott, and Marine Captain Abraham Boyce returned to Philadelphia and found that the Lexington was still under repair. Instead of waiting around, the Marines made good use of their time. They stood up recruiting parties and traveled throughout the city recruiting new Marines for duty. With the success of previous engagements against the British, recruiting seemed to come easy. Well over 100 officers, seamen, and enlisted Marines were recruited. On May 17th, the Lexington was repaired, had much better weapons, and was now fully staffed. She received orders from the Marine Committee to join the reprisal in the Hornet and convoy merchantmen who couldn't leave port because of their recent battle. The three ships would escort the merchantmen from the river to the open sea. On May 25th, the three ships dropped anchor at Cape May. While anchored, they saw the Liverpool, a British frigate. The Wasp, another American ship, was close by and joined its nearby allies. After seeing the four ships congregate, the Liverpool would head out to sea the following day, but it would return the day after. Upon its return, the Liverpool started to chase the four ships, and this would go on for several weeks. The Liverpool would eventually return to New York, but the Orpheus and the Kingfisher would take her place and chase the American ships. Captain Wicks, captain of the reprisal, was frustrated with the situation, and in June, he wrote the Marine Committee requesting that they allow the reprisal to confront the British vessels. Captain Wicks had great timing. Coincidentally, Congress directed the Committee of Secret Correspondence to take a Continental ship and send it to the West Indies to purchase some muskets and gain intelligence on French naval troop movements. William Bingham was selected for this important role, and the Marine Committee initially assigned the Hornet to help with this mission. It was later decided that the Hornet was not seaworthy, and therefore not an appropriate vessel for the job. Her replacement would be the reprisal. On June 13th, the Wasp pulled into Cape May with William Bingham on board, but he would soon find his trip on hold due to the British frigates nearby. For two weeks they sat in Cape May. While the sun was setting on June 28th, the American ship, the Nancy, came into view east of Cape May. The Pennsylvania Committee of Safety commissioned the Nancy and loaded it with weapons, ammunition, and powder from St. Croix to St. Thomas. As soon as the ship was spotted, the Lexington and the Wasp were sent to help the Nancy to port, but with the sun setting, they couldn't find the ship in the dark. The Nancy was not sighted until morning, but by this time, it was being chased by the Orpheus. The Lexington and the Wasp retreated back to port. Captain Wicks's brother, Lieutenant Richard Wicks, organized a group of seamen and marines and set sail towards the Nancy to help defend against the British frigate. This decision was made in haste, and fell under a saying commonly used in the Marine Corps, good initiative, bad judgment. Once Lieutenant Wicks and his men were on board the ship, they realized that they could not effectively defend against the frigate. Lieutenant Wicks decided to ground the ship, 
He ran the ship ashore and immediately started to unload weapons, ammunition, powder, and any other valuable item on the ship. They removed everything, except for around a hundred barrels of powder. At this time, the two British ships, the Orpheus and the Kingfisher, anchored alongside the Nancy and fired. There wasn't much the Americans could do, so they set fire to the remaining barrels of powder and left. The British saw an opportunity and dispatched multiple boats from the Kingfisher to take over the Nancy and her cargo. However, a few minutes after the British boarded the Nancy, the powder exploded. Unfortunately, Lieutenant Wicks would die in this confrontation, but the reprisal and the merchantmen were able to safely pass the British ships without taking fire. On July 3rd, after each ship was a reasonable distance from land, they went their separate ways. The reprisal headed south and on July 11th captured the Friendship. A few days later, the reprisal would also capture the Peter and the Neptune. Marines and seamen were placed on board the newly captured ships and were either sent back to Philadelphia or another port that was appropriate for the three ships. The reprisal and the three captured ships headed towards St. Pierre, a French seaport. Before the four ships had the opportunity to port in St. Pierre, they spotted the shark a British sloop. The shark would order the American vessel to lower her boat, but in reply, Captain Wicks would tell the British to come and do it themselves. The shark would fire a warning shot across the reprisal's bow and order the reprisal to heave to, but the reprisal stayed silent. The shark would fire three warning shots at the reprisal, and the reprisal would not respond. After the last shot, the reprisal finally replied by firing at the shark. This commenced a 30-minute battle between the American and the British ships. The French would show their support to the Americans, and they started to shoot at the British ships from shore. The shark did not have many options, so to avoid the shots from the French and from the reprisal, they would sail out to sea. The French granted Captain Wick's request for protection, and they allowed the reprisal to enter St. Pierre for repairs. The captain of the shark, John Chapman, was furious that the French would allow the Americans' passage into their port and demanded that they allow him to take possession of the reprisal. The French denied his request and stated that they were a neutral party between the American and British conflicts. The British were forbidden from engaging any ship on French roads or under their forts. The French military head of the island of Martinique received orders from a French frigate to give all possible assistance and protection to the American vessels. He also allowed the three ships previously captured by the Americans to be sold or disposed of in the ports of Martinique. Naturally, this upset the British further, and in August, the British demanded that the French turn over the reprisal, but this command came from Vice Admiral James Young. The French denied this request as well. The reprisal would stay in Martinique until the end of August. Before its departure, it was loaded with muskets, powder, and other supplies that would help the Americans with their fight for independence. With a full cargo load and even a new paint job, the reprisal thanked the French and left Martinique on August 26th. She and her crew would arrive safely in Philadelphia on September 13th. Following a successful first mission, the Committee of Secret Correspondence would issue another mission to the reprisal, escort Benjamin Franklin to his post as Commissioner of France. The reprisal would set sail around November 1st and arrive in Keebrin Bay a month later. 
back at the Delaware, the Marine Committee agreed that there is very little value with the Lexington ported at Cape May. On July 2nd, they ordered Captain Barry to take the Lexington out to sea. Eight days later, Captain Barry would take the Lexington and the Sachem, a previously captured British ship, out of Cape May. The two British frigates that were previously patrolling the waters near Cape May were gone. The Kingfisher was on her way to New York, and the Orpheus was anchored southeast. Since the two British frigates were gone, the American ships were able to sail out to sea without being spotted. Soon after their departure, the two ships headed in separate directions, with their own separate missions. The Lexington headed to the Virginian coast to look for the British. She would spot a ship on July 27th and immediately start pursuing that ship. The spotted ship was a Lady Susan, a British sloop. The Lady Susan would surrender to the Lexington and allow Marines to board. A few weeks later, the Lexington would capture the Betsy as well. With the capture of the second vessel, the Lexington headed towards the Delaware Capes and anchored off Philadelphia. Two days after anchor, Captain John Barry would resign his command. However, the Marines currently serving on board the Lexington will remain on board. In October, the Secret Committee of Congress, not to be confused with the Secret Committee of Correspondence, ordered Captain William Halleck to command the Lexington and gave him instructions to head towards the West Indies so he could pick up supplies. In December, when the Lexington was coming back from the West Indies, she was confronted by the British frigate, the Pearl. The Lexington would end up being captured. Captain Halleck and his naval officers were transferred to the Pearl, and a crew of seven from the Pearl was sent to command the Lexington. However, they did not move the Marine officers and they were left on board with about 70 other Marines and seamen. The crew of the Lexington rose under the command of one of the Marine officers on board, Captain Abraham Boyce, and they recaptured the Lexington later that same day. After the ship was recaptured, the Lexington was sailed to Baltimore. While the Lexington and the Reprisal were completing their missions, Commodore Isaac Hopkins was dealing with another problem, the majority of his men had a fever and smallpox. At least one man was dying per day and the doctors on board the ship could do very little since they were suffering from the same illness. Commodore Hopkins and his Continental Fleet continued on their voyage and in early April they spotted two ships. Marine Captain Samuel Nicholas assembled his Marines on board the Alfred. First Lieutenant Matthew Park was put in command of the main body of the company and boarded a barge while Captain Samuel Nicholas and 2nd Lieutenant John Fitzpatrick took the rest of the Marines to Alfred's quarterdeck. The Cabot headed towards the unknown vessels. Once within shouting distance, the ship identified herself as the Glasgow, a 20-gun British frigate. The Glasgow demanded to know who the other two ships were. The captain of the Cabot answered, and after he identified the two ships as the Columbus and the Alfred, a 2 and 20 gun frigate, a grenade was launched from the Cabot's main mast onto the Glasgow's deck. The grenade exploded but did little damage to the ship. No one was injured, but shortly after the grenade exploded, the Cabot opened fire on the Glasgow with seven of her six pounders. The Glasgow immediately returned fire, killing the Cabot's master, Sinclair Seymour, two Marines, Patrick Kane and George Kennedy, and wounding eight men 
including the Cabot's captain and Marine Lieutenant John Hood Wilson. This single attack forced the Cabot to retreat. While the Cabot was retreating, the Andrew Doria was getting into position and preparing an attack on the Glasgow. The Cabot almost ran into the Andrew Doria while escaping, but the two ships were able to narrowly pass each other. While the Andrew Doria was engaging the Glasgow, the Alfred positioned herself and prepared for an attack. The Alfred pointed its 29-pounders and 10 6-pounders at the Glasgow and began to fire. Captain Nicholas's second lieutenant, John Fitzpatrick, was shot in the head by a musket ball. Captain Samuel Nicholas would later give his eulogy and state, In him I have lost a worthy officer, sincere friend, and companion that was beloved by all ships company. This battle would go on for another hour and a half. The Glasgow was losing the battle, and the ship's captain assumed that they would be boarded soon. He ordered all documents about their mission be thrown overboard, and a new course set for Newport. The Alfred, Andrew Doria, and Columbus continued to chase the Glasgow until daybreak. The Glasgow was in pretty bad shape, but they were still able to outmaneuver and escape the American fleet. They chased the Glasgow for three and a half hours into Newport Harbor. Captain John B. Hopkins did not want to attack the Glasgow in port, so he ordered that his fleet give up the chase and head southwest. The Glasgow was so severely damaged that escape was not an option. Instead of wasting resources on capturing the Glasgow, the Continental Fleet decided to head for New London and unload their supplies and any other prizes from previous battles. Although significant damage wasn't done to the American ships involved in the confrontation, manpower was significantly compromised. Out of the thousand marines and seamen on board the ships, about 25% of them were sick. The men called it an evil fever, and they all required hospitalization. Many of them put in resignations or straight up deserted the ships. Commodore Hopkins requested that 170 men from George Washington's army be drafted to the Continental Navy to help with the shortage of men. The remaining Marines and sailors were moved around and spread equally between the ships. Initially, the return of the fleet was met with excitement and congratulations. John Hancock wrote a letter to Esek Hopkins congratulating him on the victory. The letter stated, I beg leave to congratulate you on the success of your expedition. Your account of the spirit and bravery shown by the men affords them the highest satisfaction and encourages them to expect similar exertions of courage on every future occasion. However, Hancock added a short blurb stating that the escape of the Glasgow was regretted. Initially, everyone agreed that the Glasgow would have been a valuable prize, and its escape was unfortunate. However, as time went on, a disappointing escape would turn into a controversy. In every tavern and throughout the town of New London, people were criticizing Hopkins' decision to let the Glasgow go. The rambling would eventually make its way to Congress, and they would issue an investigation into the complaints. Unfortunately, this issue turned political, and the Marine Committee concluded that Commodore Hopkins be reprimanded. In March 1777, Congress voted to relinquish Hopkins from his command of the Continental Fleet. But we're still a year out from Hopkins being relieved, and in the time being, he still had a war to fight. On April 19th, he and his weekly manned ships left New London and headed to Newport Harbor. They arrived on April 25th, 
where Hopkins was greeted with orders from General Washington, stating that he wants his 170 men back. This wasn't ideal for the already short-staffed ships. Men were still sick, and now there are 170 fewer of them. With the sick crew and not enough men, the Marine Committee abandoned its current mission. They spend the remaining time recruiting and gathering enough manpower to support their mission. On June 12th, Commodore Hopkins would appoint Alpheus Rice as Lieutenant of Marines and he was ordered to serve on board the Providence. However, he would not serve long and would be confined, then discharged, on August 12th for misconduct after a heated confrontation between him and William Hopkins. Rice recruited 22 Marines and they would all join him two days later. The Cabot would also receive Marine Lieutenant John Kerr, who took the place of John Hood Wilson, who was killed during the battle with the Glasgow. Wilson would serve under Marine Captain John Welsh. Lieutenant John Trevitt would be assigned to the Andrew Doria and given an additional 17 Marine privates. Initially, the Continental Fleet would have tremendous success. They would capture two ships, the Oxford and the Crawford. These were pretty large ships and immediately after their capture, the American Navy soon found a problem. The British of the two captured ships outnumbered the Americans by three to one. To confront this problem, Captain Biddle separated the sea officers from their crew and the land officers from their companies. He also ordered that all arms and ammunitions be transferred to the Andrew Doria along with the British sailors. With the British troops separated and the prizes in tow, the Americans headed back to Providence. On June 11th, and about 90 miles south of Martha's Vineyard, the Continental Fleet spotted five enemy sails in the distance. The three ships headed different directions to escape the enemy ships. The Andrew Doria made its way back to Newport Harbor. The Crawford successfully escaped, but the 300 prisoners who were on board the Crawford revolted and took their ship back from the 11-man crew. Marine Lieutenant John Trevitt was on board at the same time and stated, I could not blame them, for I would have done the same. Even though the Continental Fleet was having a successful first year, you have to keep in mind that this was a new fleet. New leadership, new ships, new crew, and even a new Congress. They weren't experienced, and their ships were previous commercial vessels outfitted with cannons. Back in December 1775, Congress authorized the purchase of 13 ships for the Continental Navy, and throughout 1776, the focus of the Marine Committee was building these ships and finding enough men to staff them. Unlike the current fleet, the 13 ships were to be built as warships. The Marine Committee assigned who would build these ships based on the competency of each colony's shipbuilding industry. Pennsylvania would build four, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New York would each build two, and New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Maryland would each build one. Each colony would appoint a committeeman to supervise a shipbuilding project. They would also be responsible for selecting and recommending skilled naval and marine officers to man the ships. In May 1776, the rally was launched out of New Hampshire. Thomas Thompson would be appointed as the frigate's commander, and after much debate, George Jerry Osborne was appointed captain of marines. Captain Osborne was from Exeter, New Hampshire, and he was a schoolteacher in Portsmouth before the Revolutionary War. Two additional Marines were selected to serve as Osborne's lieutenants, Stephen Meads from New York 
and Nathaniel Thwing from Boston. These three officers, along with about 90 other Marines, would board the rally for service. In Massachusetts, two more ships were built. The Boston, a 24-gun frigate, was launched on June 3rd, and the Hancock, a 32-gun frigate, was launched about a month later. Richard Palms would be selected as the captain of the Marines for the Boston, and he assigned Benjamin Thompson as his lieutenant. On October 10th, Seth Baxter would be appointed captain of Marines on board the Hancock. Rhode Island would complete construction of the Providence, a 28-gun frigate, and the Warren, a 32-gun frigate. These two ships would launch in mid-May. Captain William Jennison would be appointed as the first lieutenant on board the Warren. However, he wasn't able to recruit the 25 Marines required with the 60 pounds allotted to him by the committee. By mid-June, he gave up trying to recruit the 25 Marines. He quit the service and joined a company of volunteers for duty with Washington. John Grannis would take his place as captain of Marines, and he would assign Barnabas Lorthrop as a second lieutenant. Naturally, the Rhode Island Committee was pretty bothered that Jennison accepted their commission, took their money, and left to volunteer with Washington. This led to recruitment quotas for Marine officers. A captain was expected to recruit 40 good men, a first lieutenant, 23, and a second lieutenant, 27. Each officer had to recruit their quota before they would receive their commission. Ships would be built in each separate colony, and each colony would go through the process of selecting the appropriate Marines to man these ships. Congress relaxed the requirements for prize shares and also raised the pay of all ranks in the Navy. Unfortunately, the pay for only two ranks in the Marines would be raised. Captains would see a raise from 26 and two-thirds dollars to $30 a month. Lieutenants would see a $2 pay increase from $18 to $20 per month. Unfortunately, pay for sergeants, corporals, drummers, fifers, and privates did not change since their pay was based on land service units. I have a copy of the pay scale posted on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you would like to take a look. The Marine Committee also saw the need to distinguish Marine officers from members in the private sector. They issued uniforms in September 1776. Based on the British Navy's uniform, the committee issued a blue coat with red lapels and cuffs and yellow metal buttons. It had a red waistcoat, blue breeches, white stockings, and the tricorn hat for American naval officers. Marine officers were issued a green coat faced with white round cuffs, slash sleeves and pockets, with buttons around the cuff, a silver epaulet on the right shoulder, skirts turned back and buttons to suit the facings. A white waistcoat was worn and also breeches edged with green, black gaiters and garters, and green shirts for the men if they can be procured. No one really knows why the color green was selected, but there are a few theories. Some think the design was based on John Cadwallader's Philadelphia militia who wore similar looking uniforms. Some think it was inspired by the Gloucester Fox Hunting Club founded by Samuel Nicholas. And others think that it was simply because there was a lot of green material available. In January 1776, the Marines were a small force of 234 men. But by the end of the year, that number would more than double and they would stand over 600 strong. With the newly built 13 frigates and multiple ships currently in the fleet, the Marines saw the fragmentation of a centralized command, 
Marines on board each ship were trained independently, and there wasn't coordination from a central command to guide Marines. Congress's original plan was for the Marines to separate into an independent corps, but this was no longer the case. Marines would not branch off into their own independent force and would serve under the Continental Navy, a practice still held to this day. Next week, we get into a little army action and discuss the legendary Trenton-Princeton campaign. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we discuss the Trenton-Princeton campaign, George Washington's role in this campaign, and how the Marines helped out. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.